0: Welcome to this um, evening's meeting. This is a first for me I've never chaired one of these uh, meetings at the London School of Economics, being a bit of a newcomer myself. Anyway, it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Andrew Dilmott. Um Unfortunately, Michael Blastland, who was to be here, has been, um, couldn't come because of family um, family issues not unconnected with the fact his wife is pregnant. Um, anyway, um, let me talk about Michael first. He's um, a very distinguished um, journalist who works with BBC and for newspapers. When, you, when you're going to chair something, you, you check the web, and it's absolutely clear. Every, every, everything one can think about him is true. He's, he's uh, um, one of our up-and-coming foremost journalist, Um, Michael and Andrew teamed up um, on the program more or less um, and they don't, speaking to Andrew doesn't still present it but it did (coughs) kickstart it into one of the most uh, successful programs on the fountain of wisdom which of course is Radio 4 Um, Andrew is sort of was an academic in the true sense of the world word, there's many academics in this room and I'm one myself, um, but, but it's now it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of kicked upstairs to <laughs> become um, principal of uh, St. Uh, Hughes College Oxford it, and, but it's also um, well known um, uh, in, in journalism and on, on the radio and also was um, perhaps uh, well known in the economic and finance area for being a director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Um, This is a subject which concerns me very much um, as a LSE professor of statistics. um, And uh, I'm hoping that um, the the very many fine reviews which the book has had, um, and I have been doing a bit of homework on that, there's there's a wonderful review in Economist and Guardian and and so on. I I hope very much that what they say is true and that this talk will be more, not less.
1: I'm going to sit down. (coughs) Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm delighted to be here. I was saying to Henry earlier on this evening that uh, the very first teaching I did in a university anyway was in this university, in this building in 1982, and I remember being a great deal more anxious about it than uh, the undergraduates. There were two very clever people in the class that I taught, that year it was public finance, economics, the two were uh, a young man called Daniel Finkelstein, uh, as far as I can tell now writes about football for the Times uh, in, the, in the time he takes off from trying to be a serious journalist and was for some considerable time uh, involved with first of all the SDP and then uh, the Tories as political advisor. And the other was, um, was a man whose name actually I won't give you because uh, I'm about to tell you a story which is slightly uh, worrying. He was he a was really very, very clever young man indeed. Uh, he came, towards, take, came to speak to me towards the end of the year and asked me where he should apply to do graduate work. So I said, uh, well, you should probably go to do the master's, uh, the MPhil in economics at Oxford. Um, to my enormous chagrin, uh, he applied. That wasn't to my chagrin, but to my enormous chagrin and disappointment, He was not accepted, uh, something that I think would not happen, or at least I hope would not happen these days. Anyway, it's lovely to be back in this building, which seems uh, slightly more modern than it did then. Uh, It is a great shame not to have Michael uh, with us, not least because uh, Michael and I make a great team when it comes to uh, discussing averages. I am, as you can probably tell, even without anybody standing next to me, a rather small man. Uh, Michael is rather tall. Uh, There are those who think he's better looking than I am as well, which I it be rather offensive um, but we use each other as examples of you know, I, I think of myself as being very slightly shorter than uh, the average but only very slightly shorter and, and Michael thinks that he's only slightly taller whereas I'm stunted and he's a mutant um, and uh, that's a perception that it's important to uh, retain as we go through our lives. Now um, I'm going to ask a number of questions as we go along, some of them will be multiple choice questions but there's one that I'd like you to keep at the back of your minds as we go through, and that is uh, how many petrol stations are there in the United Kingdom. So if you find yourself drifting off as, um, as we go on, then uh, fall back on the question, how many petrol stations are there in the UK, and we'll come back to that later. Now, uh, for five years now, I've been uh, in the quieter climes of Oxford, but for 21 years, I worked at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, where we tried to referee the debate about what was going on in the public finances and public policy more generally. And one of the things that would frequently occur was that we would be asked to interpret numbers. And this led to some very funny experiences. One in particular that I remember was in uh, 1999, after the 1999 budget, which had seen taxes rise again. Uh, not by very much, but, but they had risen. Um, and... Uh, I was called in front of the Treasury Select Committee to give evidence to the Treasury Select Committee, as I frequently was. And uh, at the end of the evidence session, the the chairman, who I think probably was still Giles Radici, then said, well, it's great, everybody, is there anything anyone would like to add? And I piped up and said, well, I would just like to clarify what's been going on with the tax burden. If you look at, I think it was table B13, on page 139 of the financial statement of budget report, you can see that the tax burden has gone from about 30, 6.7% 6.7% of national income to about 378 and the second number is bigger than the first therefore the tax burden has gone up that was the end of it. The following week Mr. Brown uh, was before the Treasury Select Committee as the then Chancellor of the Exchequer and one of the Conservative members of the committee said to him now Mr. Brown last week we had Mr. Dilmott from the Institute for Fiscal Studies in, and he pointed this to table B13 and pointed out that the tax burden has gone up Uh, do you agree with him? Uh, To which Mr. Brown said, well, Mr. Dilmott is entitled to his views. Um, So the the, the young Tory mp I can't remember who it was, tried again and said, well, um, no, no, um, table B30, you know, it shows this, this." and Mr. Brown said again, well, Mr. Dilmot is entitled to his views. Uh, This went on for some considerable time, leading to Mr. Brown in the end refusing to read out the numbers in the document he had himself produced that is at one level what we're struggling against there was a significant question in the public's mind and in the minds of journalists about whether taxes had gone up or down well I'll show you in a minute whether they'd gone up or down at that point this is an example of the kind of number it's a simple number but you really need to understand what's happened to the size of government if you're to understand what's going on in the world Uh, I remember another experience from my early years, it wasn't very early, later years at IFS, I I always cycled around London, lived in Oxford throughout this time, and one evening I'd not left enough time to get from my office just off off Gower Street to Paddington, so I cycled very quickly, it was a very warm evening, and I arrived at Paddington just in time to get on the train, slumped down onto the train ten seconds before the train was due to leave, perspiring lightly. Um... And I was surrounded by people, most of whom I knew very well, and one person sitting opposite me, who I didn't know so well, but did know a bit, uh, a quite well-known poet. the time when the train shuttle left came and went, five minutes came and went, ten minutes came and went, twenty minutes came and went. People got more and more grumpy, as they tend to do on uh, those trains, you know, the kind of train which has a sticker on the window that says, you must not open the window, since this will prevent the air conditioning from working. Um, although it's not working to start with. People were getting quite grumpy, and the person sitting opposite me, who's famously foul-mouthed, said, oh, I don't know, nothing in this country ever works. The Health service doesn't well work. The education systems are complete. And even the transport... Um, I don't know what's going on. So I said, well, X. Um, uh, as you know, you know I'm the kind of, I, I, I carry a fair number of numbers around me. I've got in my bag some tables and charts showing public expenditure as a share of national income overall and on public transport, health and education. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm a a poet. I don't do numbers. Now, I was by this stage also pretty hot and fairly grumpy, so I lost my temper, which I very rarely do. And there are one or two people here tonight who have known me for a long time uh, who would know that I very rarely do my temper, but I did. I said, well, that's frankly not good enough. Um, And... um, now, if I, if, uh, if I were to sit here and tell you that you know, last week my first child was born, I've never been more moved, or my best friend's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and you, and you were to say to me, well, have you read this book, or do you know this poem? i no, I'm a social statistician, I don't do literature. You would quite rightly say, well, you're a pigging philistine. Um, and that's what I said to him. Now... No, that's not what I want to do. How am I going to make this? Ah, oh, here we go. Where's the, where's the button for me to press? I think that makes ah, it's, it's hidden. Fabulous. Right. So, this is a classic example of a number that is not well understood. Uh, many people believe that um, the current Labour government has presided over wicked, massive increases in the burden of taxation. Well, it is true that you can see just here that um, taxes did rise uh, in the first few years of the Labour government. This is just tax as a share of national income. They did rise slightly as a share of national income, uh, and that was what Mr Brown and I were having an argument about. Um, They then fell slightly and they've then risen again a little bit. But the really important thing to note from this chart is uh, for all of the first ten years of the Labour government tax the share of national income was lower than it was in any year of the Mrs Thatcher government. Mrs Thatcher who rolled back the state uh, and transformed the scale of government intervention in British society well, actually tax was higher in every single year under Mrs Thatcher than it has been in any year uh, that Tony Blair and now Gordon Brown have been in power now that's quite an important thing to understand when you come to thinking about what's going on in the economy if you're surprised that the health service, the education system, the public transport mechanism have not been transformed, then you probably shouldn't be, because actually we're not spending more money than we were. Now, this is slightly unfair, because this is tax as opposed to public spending, and that's the question I was first asked. But this kind of information, terribly readily available, largely simply ignored. And in case you think I'm just fiddling with numbers and something really fat funny happened in the major years, I, I, I don't know why I chose a light blue for... Um, the major years here in here the major year as well uh, and, and you can see that um, um, tax fluctuate up and down a little bit but there was a great big recession just here that tends to reduce uh, taxation of, share of, of national income but the key point is that government's no bigger now than it was under Mrs Thatcher in fact it's rather smaller now there are some detailed questions about what you do with public corporations and all kinds of other and the sale of of nationalised industries, all that kind of stuff but the core point is that it's not a surprise that we're struggling to deliver the level of public service provision we'd like we don't raise enough tax to do that and we are raising less than we did under Mrs T now a few general points about numbers which is really what this book is all about the the single most important question to ask about a number is, is whether it's big or not and you might think that was straightforwardly done and always done but actually it turns out that it's not Here, perhaps my favourite example comes from early in the Labour government. So this was an idea where uh, a press release went out saying that £300 million would be spent to uh, generate a million childcare places over five years. And this received a lot of coverage on radio, in television, or broadsheets. This was going to be transformative of uh, childcare in the UK. Well, Let's do some sums. Um, 300 million uh, pounds for a million children, well, that's 300 pounds per child. That's not a terribly difficult sum. Journalists are capable of doing that. Uh, 300 pounds over five years, well, that's 60 pounds per child per year. Now, the next sum is much more subtle. Um, And uh, here, the the relevant answer is between uh, one pound and one pound 25 a week. That is enough. Now, when you go back and reread the press release very, very carefully, you can see that whoever drafted it was being very, very careful. The press release nowhere actually says that the £300 million was meant to pay for the childcare. And, of course, there's no way that it could have been. But that was how it was reported, and indeed, I think, how it was meant to be reported. This £300 million was meant to facilitate other people paying for the childcare, although the press release didn't say that. I went with Michael nine years ago to interview a man called Richard Tate who was then the uh, editor-in-chief of Independent Television News which ran Channel 4 News among a number of other things and, and took him through this example because Channel 4 had gone big on this story and Richard who is now a, who's somebody I uh, has been a friend of mine for 25 years and I like very much and admire very much but Richard said to us well I mean I put it to him that maybe they should have done this uh, and he said well no I, I think really that, that's for the experts um, well that is what we all have to struggle against. Instead of allowing this kind of stuff to just wash over us, think about it for a moment. Take another one. Glen Eagles, the $50 billion of debt relief, which was supposed to be pretty dramatic. Well, that's quite a big number. Uh, But, of course, that was the stock of debt. The the annual foregone interest of the rich countries is about $1.5 billion a year. Well, that's still quite a big number. I wouldn't mind a slice of about a billion and a half dollars. The exchange rate at the moment is quite convenient, so £750 million. Well, that still sounds like quite a lot of money. Um, how many people live in the G8? Well, conveniently enough, about <laughs> £750 million. So the cost uh, per person of the Glen Eagles debt relief uh, for the rich world was uh, about a pound per head uh, per year, which probably we can afford. And, of course, it wasn't even that because much of it is coming out of pre-existing aid budgets which were not increased to take account of it. Now, both of those are examples of how you take a big number and work out whether it really is a big number. And the answer almost always is cut it down to size. Make it personal, and that way you'll find out. I won't talk about this one. we can perhaps come back to it later. This This was a recent pretty naughty one, we thought. The Daily Mail got very excited about the Uh, appalling crisis of 3,000 crimes committed by the under 10s you know kind of hells uh, junior school children sort of thing Um, is 3,000 under 10s very many well when you're thinking about people remember that there are 60 million people in the country it's not quite true that there are a million people for every year in fact it's nearer half a million than a million but that gives you a clue well we presumably don't think that many 6 year old nuns are committing these crimes, but of the under tens, nines, nines, so maybe about 1.82 million. Um, is 3,000 crimes out of 2 million children a lot? Well, if it was 3,000 criminals, it would still be significant. But notice that it's crimes. And one thing we know about criminals is that they rather get the urge. Um, and so once you start, you probably do quite a lot. This was a load of complete cobblers, but not... As bad as this, this, uh, Michael, and I think, is the worst piece of statistical gobbledygook in the region, in the area of public policy we have seen in the last year, and possibly, um, you know, almost as bad as, as, as our worst favourite of all time, which was the assertion that uh, the number of people murdered had doubled in the U.S. every year since 1953, um, which turns out to have killed the whole of the population of the U.S. I think by about 1987, the whole of the world by the mid-90s and, um, you know, an implausibly large number of parallel universes by the millennium. So Britain in grip of neurovirus as cases hit 3 million. So this is from uh, the Daily Telegraph. Uh, but they were not the only uh, organ to publish this story. The BBC gave it enormous prominence. Uh, sea of vomit uh, over the world, or at least over Britain. So, When you see something like this, what do you think? Well, has somebody gone and counted all three million of them? Well, of course not. And the most important thing to think about all such numbers is that they're almost always the result of sampling. Sampling, as (laughs) people like Professor Wynne could explain, turns out to be pretty tricky. So we thought we'd go and have a look at uh, the number of lab reports. Okay, so this is the number of laboratory reports, and there is no... Hundreds or thousands missing off the y-axis. This is the number of uh, laboratory reports confirmed from 2000 to 2007. Now, you can see there is some kind of upward trend, although whether that tells us anything about the incidence of the norovirus as opposed to the incidence of people reporting it to laboratories we don't know, you'll also see that, like many numbers, and I'll come back to this, it goes up and down. Um, You'll notice that in the previous three years, so this is... The 50th week of 2007, this is the middle of 2007, this is the fourth week of 2007, the 33rd week of 2006, the 10th week of 2006, Um, you you can see that there are peaks and troughs. The peak did come rather earlier in 2007, and that was why people got a little anxious. So the 3 million number, um, well, it wasn't based on, and these are weekly numbers on the y-axis, it, it, it turned out that this was based on uh, a conclusion that one lab case meant that there were 1,500 in the community. So you just multiply the number of laboratory cases by 1,500. And at the time, there were felt to be about, well, there were 2,000 lab cases. If it accumulated bit. So, so that was where the 3 million came from. And of course, what you want to know is how confident can we be that this is the the accurate number? So this was all based on a study that had both taken a a lab report, lab reports, and and also looked at cases out there in the community. So there's a confidence interval as a result of this. There's a range within which one could be reasonably confident that the true answer lay. And the lower bound was that rather than it being 1 to 1,500, it might be as sure as 1 to 140 which would lead you to think there were 280,000 cases of the norovirus in the community. Uh, The upper bound was uh, 1 to 17,000, which would give you uh, 34 million cases. So this is not a very uh, accurately uh, predicted, and so one thought, well study lab cases. How many lab cases were there uh, for the relevant community study? One! <laughs> so that's why the confidence interval is pretty big. We didn't have a clue how many cases there were in the community of the norovirus. We didn't have the f- foggiest idea. Not the f- foggiest idea. And yet newspapers and broadcast media behaved as though we did. And I have no doubt that some directors of public health will have reallocated resources on the basis of that, thinking that there was uh, a a huge pandemic of winter vomiting. It is enough to make you. Um, Now let me talk a little bit about chance. Um, One of the most difficult interviews that Michael and I conducted while making the radio program was with some people who lived in Wishaw, which is a small village outside Birmingham. There are between 30 and 40 houses in this village, and at the time that we went to see them, there were 17 cases of various forms of cancer there. And not only were there cases of cancer, but there was also a mobile phone mast in the village, a mobile phone mast which had been pulled down mysteriously in the middle of the night. We went to see them and interview them to to make the point to them that the fact that there was a clustering of cancer cases in their village did not, and that there was also a mobile phone mask, did not demonstrate that the one had caused the other, and that in fact in a country the size of the UK, what would be remarkable would be if there were no clusters of any kind of uh, event, that we would expect clusters of events. They did get it. And they got it partly in the end because we showed them this kind of image. So this is just uh, as close to a random drawer as we could get. And then we pointed out to them that we could draw some rectangles around areas of apparent concentration, circles even. Uh, And we could also draw some around the absence of activity. If we could get journalists to understand this, this would be a major step forward, Uh, in the search for the transmission of information we seem desperately to seek explanation indeed there may well be evolutionary attractions and advantages in the seeking of patterns and of information, that's why our book is called The Tiger That Isn't if you're you're in the jungle and you see something that looks as though it might be a tiger then it's probably a good idea to turn around and run very very quickly, even if 99 times out of 100 you're just looking in some shadows uh, In pre-Iron Age times, I doubt there were many people with a strongly developed statistical sense because they probably wouldn't have lasted very long. But that's not the world we live in now. The world we live in now is where we want to test all of our impressions that there is a pattern out there. And all too often we jump into thinking there's a pattern when there is none. Another example of that which I want to come to now is um, speed cameras. And here we're going to play a little game. Now, we're, we're suffering Michael's not here for many reasons. Um, but the principal reason is that I only have to dice. Uh, Michael had to our dice because the last time we did a large events, he took most of them away. Um, I promise you that we're not sad enough to play with dice a lot at home in the evening, but um, I've got some dice now, uh, red and green, there is no significance to it. Um, I'm going to give these dice out to 25 people, uh, or rather I'm going to start the front and, and get them to move back the lucky 25 people. It is, uh, it's best if it's not junction 5 to junction 9 of the M1, because at the moment that's not, not moving at all, I heard on the radio on the way up. So you're, you're a bit of road, and uh, we're going to decide whether to put a speed camera uh, on your bit of road. So when you've, when you've got your dice, what I want you to do is um, roll the dice twice and add up the combined score, and that is going to be the number of accidents that occur... Uh, on your piece of row. So, uh, roll the dice, uh, add up your combined score. Now, did anyone, is anyone an accident black spot? Did anyone score 12? So we have no accident black spots. Did anyone score 11? Good one, 11. Did anyone score 10? Or five, five tens. Okay, we'll stop there. What I'd like now, so, so you, are, you are the bad bits of road. What I'd like you to do now is to, um, I haven't brought any photographs of a speed camera with me, but imagine that I've given you a photograph of a speed camera. So, so we have acted as a, a rational road authority. We do. We've identified the dangerous bits of road, and we're putting speed cameras on them. So now I'd like the six people who scored either 11 or 10 to roll their dice again twice. And tell us the scores. So, the gentleman who scored 11. Very good. That's very impressive. And the people who scored 10. The five people who scored 10. That's very impressive. Two. Well, I have to say, that's fabulously effective. And that's really very good indeed, isn't it? Don't you think? That's really, that's demonstrated how marvelous speed cameras really are. Now, the effect that we've just uh, demonstrated is regression to the mean. If you, if you do something where chance is the principal component of what happens, then if you end up with a large number or a small number first time, you're much more, you're likely to move back towards the mean when you do it again. When the Department of Transport published its first estimates of the effect of uh, safety cameras on on fatalities on the roads in 2003, uh, we looked at them and and we were surprised to see that there was no account taken of regression to the mean, although it was accepted that they chose where to put the cameras on the basis of where accidents had been occurring. And we said we thought this was rather surprising and that regression to the mean might be quite important. Uh, We were told this was silly academic nonsense. Two years later, the Department of Transport republished, uh, having taken account of regression to the mean and also the downward trend in accidents. Their original numbers, they now said that 20% of the original claim reduction was down to the trend decline, and that 60% of it was regression to the mean. The number of of fatalities they now claim was only 20% of those they had claimed at first. Now, at the time, and it's worth saying uh, that there was also something rather fishy about the press release they produced uh, on that second occasion, since several of the numbers were exactly half of several of the other numbers, a point that I made loudly at the time, subsequent to which they were changed, which doesn't fill you with enormous confidence. One of the responses that was made at the time was, ah, yes, but um, even though the numbers are smaller than we used to think they are, they are at least still positive. And I should say that I am not opposed to safety cameras. I think they may do considerable good. But, of course, we need to know how much good they do, because safety cameras are not the only way in which we can intervene to try to make the roads safer. We can put fences up around primary schools. We can put more uh, marked or unmarked cars out on the roads, In public policy, we need to know accurately the effect of interventions and to be as extraordinarily statistically naive as to have a major department of state ignoring regression to the mean when calculating the effect of something like the effect of safety cameras is pretty terrible. It happens (coughs) again and again. Uh, You will have heard late summer of last year claims that the And again, I should say, I'm virulently opposed to smoking. But you will have heard claims that the the smoking ban in Scotland had led to a 17% reduction in emergency admissions for heart attacks in its first year. Now, when we heard that, we thought, goodness me, that's pretty effective. Um, And not just amongst smokers, but amongst non-smokers as well. (laughs) So the reduction in passive smoking in the first year in Scotland was supposed to have led to a 17% reduction, Well, so that seemed pretty bold uh, it was covered widely again, it was on the Today programme interview on the Today programme, Scottish Health Minister and I think the Scottish First Minister came out and said, marvellous this was vindicated their policy the researchers refused to publish their data, that is always a bad sign when the official data finally came out uh, this was what they looked like. So this goes back to 1996-97 and 4-2005-6. And the blue is men, the the dark blue is men, the light blue is women, the green is both sexes. You can see there was a fall from 4-5 to 5-6. It turned out to be a fall of 8%, uh, not 17%. But what is really important to notice is that There'd been a fall going on before the introduction of the smoking ban and there was one year back here when the fall was considerably greater than the fall in the first year of the smoking ban when nothing happened as far as smoking is concerned. And the important thing here is numbers go up and down. They just do go up and down and the smaller the number is the more it will go up and down. And the repeated assertion that the latest number and the difference between the latest number and the penultimate number tells us something dramatic is another appalling consequence of our numerate, or lack of numerate understanding, our numerate naivety. It's even more bold in um, a bit of a... So this is Mon- in, uh, Monta- in Montana in the States, where there was an assertion that smoking ban had led to a 40% uh, reduction. I think was from here to here. Well, this is the whole back series... There are quite a lot of occasions when the number falls dramatically. It often happens to happen just after it's gone up dramatically. It's not subtle or complicated just to show a little bit of scepticism, but it does turn out to be quite important. Let's say a little bit about risk now. Uh, Perhaps the story that I've got most angry about in the last five years was a story about alcohol and breast cancer. So this was a story in 2002 which asserted that well, originally it was it was broadcast on the BBC saying that every time a woman has a drink she increases her risk of breast cancer by six percent, which would kill most women by the summer. Um, <laughs> not even not even those who have difficult partners, but you know, just any normal woman, uh, it was, that was corrected and to, to the story released by Cancer Research UK that uh, adding a, a unit of alcohol every day to a woman's consumption increases her risk of breast cancer by 6%. Well, that is a statement of zero content. It tells you nothing of any value. Because if the base risk was zero, then the risk would still be zero after you'd had several bottles of wine the base risk risk was 50% in the next year, then the risk would be materially increased. There is an international statistical standard that advises that all such releases should include not the change in the relative risk, but must include the base risk, because without knowing what the base risk is, statements of that form have no content whatever. That Cancer Research UK, not only then, but repeatedly fails to include that information, is, I think, despicable. And they do that because by doing that, they get lots of press coverage. So they're not the only guilty partner. We in the media are guilty too. But it is pretty disgusting. The sensible way of trying to report a risk like that is to say, if you took 100 women, by the age of 80, eight of them would have contracted breast cancer. If you took that hundred women and added a unit of alcohol every day of their adult lives, that eight would rise to eight and a half. That's all of a sudden nothing like so scary and nothing like so good a news story, but it is conveniently quite intelligible. We had another example of this in the summer when we were told about all kinds of risks to our health from eating bad things. This led to, I think it was The Sun, running a Save Our Butty campaign. And let me say I am not a great supporter of uh, newspapers' uh, approach to numbers. The statement was made that uh, there was a 21% increase in the risk of colorectal cancer for eating 50 grams of bacon every day. Well, it's true that that is a way of describing what's going on, but I think this would be a better way of describing it, that the baseline risk is 5 in every 100, so uh, if you eat 50 grams of bacon a day, roughly 2 ounces in old money, then that goes from 5 to 6, so 99 of the 100 would have their prospects unaffected. I suspect that would lead to a slightly different interpretation of what was going on. Now let me come to the thing I care about most of all, having been a sad uh, social trends obsessive all of my life. My homepage is the ONS website, which is what I uh, yearn to be true for the whole population. If we would just all have the ONS website as our homepage, we would know more and be surprised less. Data is not appreciated in this country as it ought to be. Uh, repeatedly people make statements that are entirely contradicted by data. In fact, often they're not contradicted by data because nobody's gone to look at the data. Um, My favorite relates to whale safety. We all know that privatization of the railways led to a chronic decline in safety. Um, Or at least we would if we... um, Ooh, now... This is a a chart showing, uh, starting in 1955 and coming to 2005, fatal accidents per million train kilometres. And you can see that this data goes up and down, as you would expect. You can see that the trend line is downwards. And you can also, and privatisation happens here, you can also see that actually post-privatisation there have been significantly fewer fatalities than, not only than there were before, but fewer than we would have expected had the trend that had been going on beforehand continued. It is not true that rail safety has worsened post-privatisation. The reverse is true. Rail safety has improved post-privatisation. Now, of course, that's not the same as saying that privatisation is not responsible for Hatfield. The railways were privately owned when Hatfield occurred. Therefore, privatisation is responsible for Hatfield. It's also true that British Rail, on that argument, is responsible for all of these accidents. There is a chain of causation for most things. But in the case of rail safety, it turns out to be true that the number of fatalities has been lower than we would have expected had privatisation not occurred. Now, it may have nothing to do with Privatisation. something else may have occurred. And it's possible that uh, if privatization hadn't occurred, there would have been even fewer accidents than there have in fact been. But it is important in a discussion of this to take the data, which shows that there have been still fewer accidents than we used to expect. And statements of the form uh, privatization made the railways less safe Hatfield proves it, which have been made to be by a senior transport journalist in one of the UK's most prestigious journalism organisations are, in my view, just not good enough. Now, I think uh, I should ask you a few questions now, because um, I've been talking quite a long time. Um, I'm going to ask you three uh, multiple choice questions, and uh, I know roughly how many of you there are in the room, so I suggest you answer if you don't. Uh, anybody who doesn't answer at all will have to come and stand here and sing a hymn of my choosing. Um, so save us, please, answer the questions. Um, the first is a question which relates to pensions. Uh, the flagship of the Labour Party's pensions policy is a policy called the stakeholder pension. It was introduced uh, with the aim of providing pensions, not for the very poor, nor for the very rich, but the, starg- the that the target income range was people in current terms roughly between 10 and £20,000 a year, maybe a little bit higher than that. Now, the question is this. Imagine that you took a, a reasonably random sample of the population in every year for four years running up to the introduction of stakeholder pensions. So you've got a random sample of the population, and from that group you take those who are in work throughout that four-year period and are in the stakeholder pension income target range. So they're the people that stakeholders were uh, aimed at. What proportion of that group had some kind of pension provision in addition to the basic state provision uh, already? So, for how many people in the income, income target range for stakeholder pensions was the whole idea simply uh, not necessary? Was it 10%? Did 10% already have some kind of pension provision? 20, 30, 40, or 50. So... Uh, how many of those at whom stakeholders were aimed really didn't need to think about it? 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50 and so that I can't be accused of bias we'll start in the middle. So who thinks the answer is 30%? To, uh, to this point that I am struck that psychology is a more interesting discipline than uh, <laughs> economics or statistics. Um, in groups of fewer than 80, nobody will ever raise their hands for the first option. Um, I think there are probably slightly more than 80 of us here, but it's still just a bit too embarrassing. Okay, so who thinks that um, 20% of people uh, already had some kind of provision? Who thinks that 40% did? Who thinks that 10% did? And who thinks that 50% did? Well, I'm glad we're not one who wants to be a millionaire, and i just asked the audience, because um, I, think, I think about 10 thought 10%, 10 thought 20%, 2 thought 30%, 20 thought 40%, and 20 thought 50%. I'll tell you the answer later. Um, Uh, Well, I've got to keep your attention. Um, So the next question is, um, imagine that you're a childless couple. Uh, Some of you, that may be an ambition. Um, Or not. Um, Ask how much net income, so after-tax and Social Security contributions, would you need between you, so your aggregate net income, to be in the top 10% of the UK income distribution. So how much net income... Between the two of them, would a married couple without children need, don't, well, they don't have to be married, could be a couple without children need to be in the top 10%, is it uh, 35,000, 50,000, 75,000, 100,000, or 150,000? So 35, 50, 75, 100, or 150,000 pounds a year. Who thinks the answer is 75 The is 50. Who thinks the answer is 50? Who thinks the answer is 100? thinks the answer is 35? And who thinks the answer is 150? Uh, 10 thought 35, 20 thought 50. 15 thought 75, 15 thought 100, and 7 thought 150. Um, Don't don't feel this will be embarrassing. I've done this to many, many groups over the last 20 years. The group that it was most fun to do it to was the group of the permanent secretaries of all of the civil service departments. They are the only group that has refused to play the game like this. They insisted on doing it on pieces of paper, anonymously. (laughs) Uh, But I made them do 10 questions. And then finally, how many gym slip mums? Um, there are roughly 800,000 single parents on means tested benefits in the UK. How many of them are under the age of 18? So, how many gym slip mums are there? Is it 20, 50, or 100,000 out of the 780,000? Who thinks the answer is 50? Uh, who thinks the answer is 20? And who thinks the is 100? Okay, 30 thought, 30 thought 20, 10 thought 50, and 15 thought 100. So, i uh, give you the answers to these questions. Well, on the stakeholder pensions, uh, so 20 of you thought 50, 20, 40, 2, 30, 10, 20, and 10, 10. Uh, the answer in that group of randomly selected people, at, I think there's a sample of about 20,000, Uh, multiplied up to the population, uh, 89% of that group already had some kind of pension provision, of which 6% had rebate-only personal pensions, um, which will mean something to at least one person in this audience, um, who at the times maybe still worked in the relevant department. Um, So 80% of that sample actually uh, already had a pension that in some ways would would compete with the stakeholder pension. Um, you didn't do terribly well on that question, although did a lot better than the permanent secretaries, um, uh, who all thought 25 or 35 percent, just before the thing was introduced. Uh, it was no surprise that stakeholder pensions didn't immediately attract an enormous number of uh, purchasers. The error there is related to the next question. So I asked, what income do you need to be in the top? 10% and the answer for a married couple is £35,000 a year which 10 of you thought was the case 20 of you thought £50,000. On this question as on most of them actually, all three of these questions you've done better than a random draw of the population, better than most audience that I do it to. Now I would expect that at the London School of Economics. In fact I'd be very depressed were it not the case although let me tell you that I did this at the um, inaugural conference of this, this is a private, there are no press here are there because this is an off the record remark Uh, if there are any press here, so it's off the record. I did this, um, or rather more than these, at the inaugural conference all of the Treasury's Economists two years and four months ago, and they were a lot less good than you. Um, The answer is 35,000. Most of you thought the answer was 75,000 or more. This is an almost universal misperception. We think that we are much... We think that individually we are much poorer than we in fact are. Uh, most people in this room, well, the students in this room are not yet in the top 10% of the income distribution, but they will be, um, unless they choose to do something that is deliberately unremunerative, for which I would congratulate them. Um, but all, every, everybody in this room, with the, the tiniest number of exceptions, probably is in a position where they could be, if they chose, easily in the top 10% of the income distribution. This is where I make the point about me being stunted and Michael being a mutant Um, You know, we we tend to think that we're close to the mean. Whatever we are, we tend to think we're close to the mean, and we're not. Most of the people in this room have extraordinary privilege, uh, both educational and economic. The median income uh, equivalised for family circumstances. The median income for for childless couples in this country is less than £20,000 a year. Half of the households in this country live on equivalised incomes of less than £20,000 a year. Uh, the media does not hold up an undistorted image, and that is terribly <laughs> important in the making of public policy. One of the reasons I left the IFS was I couldn't bear the nonsense spoken by politicians of all sides any longer. If I hear another politician talk about Middle Britain when they're talking about people on 40 or 50 thousand pounds a year, I will, uh, quoting Violet, squeam and squeam until I'm thick. Um, it's ludicrous. And it matters a great deal in the running of public policy. The fact that you can go to the Treasury and ask the economists in the Treasury what it takes to be wealthy, what it takes to have a high income, and get a completely distorted picture of the country which they're trying to run is a terrible indictment of the state of our country. But it's not fair just to pick on civil servants. I can remember in the 1997 election campaign, having analysed the effect of abolition of the high rate of uh, abolition of the national insurance ceiling which was going to make 17% of households in London worse off being told by a journalist on one of our broadsheet newspapers that that, that must be wrong so I said well, what, what do you mean and she said well it must be over 80% it can't be 70, 17% I said why can't it be 17% she said well everybody knows that you can't live in London on less than £40,000 a year uh, And she wasn't joking, and she felt this was a legitimate analysis of policy. And then finally, Jim Slip Mums, well you did pretty well on this, because the the correct answer was not available, the correct answer is 6,000. Some of you, so those of you who said 100,000, or indeed 50,000, so roughly half of you were way off, the the half of you who said 20,000, where you can be given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, We have television programmes about Jim Slip Mums, There are 6,000 of them. Uh, It's true that teenage pregnancy is a very serious issue for us to confront, but most teenage pregnancy uh, ends in abortion. Very few teenagers have children. We really need to understand that. Now, I should should draw to a close. Um, My lovely colleague, Ruth Killick, from the publishers of Tiger, is here. And so those of you who are Driven to come and buy a copy of the book, you'll be able to buy it from Ruth tonight, even more cheaply than you could buy it elsewhere. I, um, I brought something with me that I really, really care about. This is about the most important thing in my life. Um, in my earlier career, when I was at the IFS, uh, we did a lot of well work helping the BBC, and uh, I discovered after the 1987. Uh, election campaign that I was being referred to uh, within the BBC as Professor Bonkers. I think it was a term of guarded endearment. Um, I discovered why, and it was because I, I carried one of these around in my back pocket. Um, I didn't use it very much then, because I was then young enough to be able to do mental arithmetic with greater facility than I am now. Um, But it is terribly important. Nothing that I've talked about today or that's in the book is in any way subtle or sophisticated. None of it requires mathematical ability. My colleague Michael, my co-author, is an English graduate. That's not his fault, but um, he hasn't done any mathematics since he was 16. And yet he and I have worked together on this closely over a decade. All that's required is to take seriously the numbers. And let me give you one last example of how badly we do this. A couple of months ago, I turned the television on to watch the 10 o'clock news. And Hugh Edwards, uh, who is a countryman of mine, uh, rugby, um, uh, came on and said, if everybody in the UK were to switch from high energy to low energy with light bulbs, we would see a reduction in carbon dioxide emission of five tonnes. Nobody looked amused. Nothing happened. He might just as well have said, burgle, burgle, tons. Um, it is a statement of no possible meaning. In fact, I think, he, I think he did leave the million off. I think he meant to say five million tons because UK carbon dioxide emissions are about 600 million tons a year. But in the absence of knowing what the UK's carbon dioxide emissions are, Being told that carbon dioxide emissions will fall by 5 million or 500 million or 5 is – it just doesn't have any meaning. And if I were to say, chair green, yellow clock, or if a newsreader were to make a statement like that, then we would quite rightly think this woman or man has lost the plot. But we repeatedly make statements of that kind of form with numbers in them without paying any attention, whatever, to the absurdity. They're just words, and conventionally in modern civilised societies we use words as though they mean something, and if we don't understand what they mean, we interrogate them. That's all that you need to do with numbers. And I hope that this evening has been some little encouragement. It's certainly been great fun to be here. Thank you very much.
0: um, I shall certainly take away from your wonderful talk the following phrase, which I tend to use when a student comes into my room. This is a statement with no possible meaning, which is very nice. Um, So I'll take questions from anywhere, um, so please keep them, yes, over here. Um, There are microphones around, so hang on till one gets to the other.
2: Um, I just wanted to say first how cheered I've been as somebody with a grade E GCSE in maths that I'm actually not as bad with numbers as I thought because I've often found myself hearing statements like the other kind you've, um, you've presented and thinking, well, does that mean anything? I wonder if you could give me a few tips about how to increase that um, ability that I was not particularly... So well,
0: are you telling any training sessions, right? are <laughs> you? <laughs>
1: Only to the BBC, and the BBC, to their great credit, have decided that they want—they do want us to train every single, every three weeks, each of their new batch of uh, recruits. Um, Most of the tips are about realising that we know stuff that is relevant. So we all know roughly how many people there are in the country. And when you hear the government announcing something and it sounds like a big number, divide it by the number of people you think it's likely to affect. Uh, And my favourite number is 3.12 billion pounds. If a number isn't, is less than 3.12 billion pounds, it's less than a pound per person per week. Because 3.12 billion is just 60 million multiplied by 52. Uh, and so that's, you know, that, that's a kind of useful number to have at the back of your head. But often it is, it's just about looking for the numbers that you know. So this morning was a good example. This morning the road hauliers said you know, a penny on petrol costs us 600 pounds per truck. I don't know if anybody else thought, that. that sounds like a heck of a lot. How many litres does that mean? Well, if it's 600 pounds and it's a penny a litre, then it's 600 times 100. So you think six, 600 times 10 is 6,000 times 10. 60,000 litres, how far do they drive? So anyway, I went and I looked up and the answer is that the average truck drives about 70,000 miles a year. And the average fuel consumption is about 1.4 miles per litre. So the number, and that's for for the biggest truck you can get, that's for a 44-ton monster. That still only gets you to a bit more than 400 pounds. So this statement from the road hauliers was nonsense. They said for the average person with the average truck, 600 pounds a year, this would have to be a 44-tonne monster driven 100,000 miles a year, which probably will break all sorts of rules. So the £600, which sounded uninterpretable, it doesn't take much to break it down. And that was really where the petrol stations thing I asked you at the beginning. I'll shut up again in a moment. If I were to ask you all well, how many petrol stations there are in the UK, you'd all say, well, I haven't got a clue. But if I were to say to you, think of an area, the population of which you know well, and this is more difficult in London than it is out of London, In Oxford, I can say to people, think of the population of Oxford. You know the population of Oxford is 150,000. Most people know how big their towns are. How many petrol stations are there in Oxford? And most people, you know, if you live somewhere, you'll know how many petrol stations there are. Done this all around the country. And people, and and I said then, express it as a number of petrol stations per 10,000 of the population. People will always come up with between half a petrol station per 10,000 and two petrol stations per 10,000 of the population if you said one, you then need to multiply it by 6,000 that gets you to 6,000 petrol stations there are 8,200 petrol stations so just with the kind of local knowledge that we know, we can almost always find out roughly what's going on, and the only, the only question that we don't think that applies to that we've been able to think of is how many penguins are there in Antarctica because we none of us have any information that's even vaguely related to that you either know, and apparently the answer is 2 million I have no idea whether that's right or not but often, normally, you have got some. You've got some information. So if you relate it back to your own experience, that's what that's what makes it easiest to make sense. I'll take this
0: one at the back then. Take,
1: then take Very much enjoyed reading your book earlier in the year. Particularly like the the line about averages and the light from rainbows. Um, question about. GDP and uh, growth statistics around the world Um, and noting the cover of the book Um, what's your take around the BRICS economies and growth statistics and how they are read and uh, presented in the media at present well measuring anything as as big as an economy is extremely difficult and one of the things that we always do when we measure is we often measure so that we can so that we can compare, and things are not readily comparable across cultures and across different nations. So, whereas I'm, I'm relatively comfortable with making statements about what's happened to GDP in the UK over the last 10 years or 20 years. I don't think we measure it perfectly or exactly accurately, but I think those comparisons are pretty meaningful comparisons of the scale of GDP across different countries and different cultures turn out, I think, to be remarkably hard. Uh, Partly because, by virtue of what we're measuring, we're capturing different proportions of what's important in in different countries, and partly because of the enormous problem of working out what the price working out what relevant exchange rates are. So I'm I'm more and more sceptical about comparisons. One of the things that has happened to me over the last 30 years is that i just become more and more sceptical about comparisons. It just is very, very difficult to compare things. Um, I don't think that means that we shouldn't. We should compare and we should try, but I think and GDP is a good example. People think that GDP is perfectly measured, um, not perfectly measured, and making comparisons across countries
2: is very hard. Thank you very much. Um, I'm afraid that's slightly going on from the last question. Could you say something about the fact that, for as long as I can remember, we've defined the poorest people as people living on one dollar a day, and um, you know how many people there are. There are about one billion, and then. the next lot of people live on $2 a day, and there may be about, I don't know, 1.8 billion or something. So somewhere under 3 billion, I think. I've mm. so got those large figures right. And somehow, in my lifetime, I expect to earn more all the time. But those people, apparently, they just stay on that $1. Why have they never had sort of inflation? And if you think of the fact that the dollar has gone down in value considerably, and we just seem to think it's the same. So can you just throw any light on why we think that?
1: I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, I just I just don't know the answer to that question.
0: Yes. Uh,
3: Thanks very much for your talk. Oh. Um, it, my question is kind of a companion to the first one, but it's what do we do about the people who aren't looking to go to your training session? Um, either they... Well, either you could you buy the session. book. If yeah. we <laughs> well,
2: buy the book, okay, those, but um, because...
3: Sketch tonight a picture of statistics is not kind of cold and hard and reasonable, but really founded on a, on a quagmire of fantasy, wishful thinking, and half-truth or, you know, of one's own experience. So how can one somehow get at that and put it on a more firm footing in terms of the way people understand it in public
0: policy stuff? are yeah, there some kind sort of standards that we could introduce which yes. might help I think.
1: well I think in Thank you, regulating people is very hard uh, I think the best form of regulation is better educated experts so I think that we will only get a much improved quality of public debate if for example opposition parties take it seriously and if journalists take it seriously um, I'll come back to students in a little while. One of the most depressing responses that we get from journalists when we talk about this is they say, but you you keep taking our story away. If you do this seriously, then the story goes away. But I think that's that's a very naive and wrong view. So take the rail safety issue. So the knee-jerk story was privatization is bad. Um, Now some of the characteristics of privatization may well have been responsible for Hatfield, and there was a story there. But if there's another story which says, well, hang on a minute, somehow post-privatization safety is improved, that then becomes a very interesting set of... You know, well, why? Why is it? Is it, is it because by giving uh, private individuals as directors of private companies some direct liability if something goes wrong? Do they take it more seriously? Know, is, is that possible? The norovirus... Uh, uh, Actually, it would have been a great story for one of the other newspapers to say, all these numbers you've been reading in all of the other newspapers are just garbage. Um, Again and again, there are public policy stories where an opposition party could make a real difference. So I think that, I don't myself think that we can do a great deal by regulation. I think we could do more by education. And I feel that the LSE would be a great place to start. There are too many, there are even too many economists who aren't helped to see the beauty of data. Now, I realize I'm a sad person, but I think there's nothing more fascinating than to try to find out what your country looks like. Uh, I'd love to see every student at the LSE issued with a copy of Social Trends to go regularly. There, there's a fantastic website called Gapminder, which has beautiful representations of data over the last 25 years about all kinds of measures of human development. I don't think in this country we we ascribe enough significance to to that form of understanding of what's going on. But in the end, I think we have a huge cultural problem. It's not very many months ago that Gordon Brown, after he'd been elected Prime Minister, chosen Prime Minister, became Prime Minister, whatever he did, (coughs) Um, said in public, ha, I'm not very good at sums. Well, for goodness, A, it's not true. Kind of stu- it's just simply not true. But B, what is wrong with us? That it could be acceptable. For the Prime Minister saying, no, I'm not very good at sums. As though somehow that would make us love him more. Um, I think we need, our whole culture needs to become more appreciative of, of number. Uh, I think small children, I think some of the numeracy hour stuff has helped. So I think primary school children are slightly more at ease with estimation and a sense of whether a number is big or small. But I think that secondary school seems to knock that out of people again, and university even more so, and graduate education even more so. One of the saddest things I found in the recruitment process at IFS was that by the time people had done... Graduate study often too much intuition has being taken you know, our leap to models of, of which I think the social scientist is guilty acts as a barrier to just knowing what's happening in the world which is quite important the first point
0: yes, can you throw any light on the way the bird flu statistics were presented at the time because like many people, probably, I would have thought we'd all be dead by now, mm. and it all seems to have completely evaporated. Uh,
1: whereas it, it looked as though it was an incredible threat. So, which which statistics? Bird flu, bird flu, a- bird avian, avian. Oh, yes. Um, well, there it looked to me just like a category error. So we were told that there were, you know, told how easily bird flu could 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 grow, and we were told how quickly flu could transmit through a human population. But nobody pointed out that so far we didn't have any evidence of person-to-person transmission of bird flu. You know, that Actually, it wasn't really a threat. It was a potential th- <laughs> There's always a threat from flu, but two numbers, so the number of birds that were affected and the speed with which flu-type diseases can run through a human population were described. But there was very little focus paid to how difficult to the fact that there wasn't yet a disease that was going to go through the human population. And we paid lots of attention to things like um, plane flights from countries where there was a lot of bird flu. Whereas it seemed to me, I may be wrong, we've probably got some public health experts here, that that actually as soon as a mutation that was human-to-human transmissible appeared, we were basically doomed. Because, you know, stopping a few aeroplane flights was not going to stop the spread of this thing around a world where we have, Massive mobility of people. So that just looked like scary numbers, a bit like the norovirus numbers, that weren't really the relevant numbers. And it wasn't numbers that was relevant, it was what the probability of a mutation occurring that would turn something like the HN51 bird flu into a human-to-human transmissible. And I think that's, that kind of problem does happen again and again. We, and the media, we as individuals and the media, as as providers, love big numbers, and things changing quickly. Uh, And I don't think it it wasn't really a number story like that we wanted to know the answer to. It was, well, how likely is it that this thing, which at the moment isn't really a threat to people, will mutate itself into something which is a threat to people? So I think we just didn't get get the answer to the interesting question.
0: Um, Yes, in the back.
3: I would really love to believe what you said about a cultural change making a difference to important statistics. But somehow I'm still pessimistic that the incentives for people to use statistics in the right way just aren't there. I mean I work at least partly when I'm at LSE on alcohol issues and I've worked with a lot of NGOs and been part of one for a bit. And I find it very frustrating in trying to get statistics used properly because it's in everybody who works with that sort of organisation's interest to try and claim a place on the news agenda and you know that everybody else is doing it and so you just mm-hmm. simply won't get your public health issue or any sort of issue covered unless you try and misuse it the best of your ability and rather than just hoping for a culture change I mean is there anything practical that we can do to make it in general at least interest or you just hope for yeah. a long term shift yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah that's I mean, that's a good point
0: I mean, ONS um, has a big... Office of National Statistics obviously has a a big influence in setting some kind of standards. I mean, maybe I can turn that into a question and say, how is ONS doing these days in terms of um, its own presentation and use of the web and things like
1: that? I I mean, in many ways, I think the ONS does a great job. I think the, the public perception that... A lot of the numbers are cooked. I think it's just wrong. I think the ONS is a really is a really great organisation, and in all the twenty one years that I was heavily involved in all this kind of stuff, um, I only ever saw one one serious mistake, and it was just a mistake. I'm absolutely convinced it was a mistake. It was a very it was a silly mistake that somebody should have picked up, but it was just a mistake. Where the ONS I think, or where our statistical Apparatus falls down. Is that I think we get very little, we don't get good analysis from the ONS of the kinds of questions that people really want to know the answer to. So the ONS press releases are not typically, they don't typically go as far as one would want them to go. And we have gross abuse of numbers by politicians. And this is not a party political point. I mean, most of my examples were anti Labour government because that's what we've had for the last 10 years. But those, are, those, those who have been working in the civil service during the time when the Conservatives were in power, when I was at the IFS, will assure you that I was at least as rude to the Tories, um, and with just as good cause. The ONS hasn't yet found itself in a position to say that was a load of complete codswallop. Uh, now, the, the changes, the, the legislative changes that are going through, Sir Michael Scholar's new Statistics Board will be in a position where it could, if something really out, really stupid was done, say, that's really stupid. That will be a really hard judgment for them to take. Uh, but I think they will, I think in the first two or three years, they will face such an opportunity, and that will be a critical moment for statistics in the UK. If they, if they, get the, if they judge it right and they pick the thing correctly to have a go at, then that will have a very significant effect. Because I think to stop people doing bad things, they have to think they'll be punished if they do it. In the, in the end, I think that's the... You know, if we want Cancer Research UK not to put out only press releases with only relative risk statements, then they have to think they'll be punished if they do it. And frankly, being hauled across the coals on a Radio 4 programme on a Monday afternoon by me, doesn't, you know, that's, not, that's not enough not scary enough um, and the same is true of, of ministers. One, only one minister ever agreed to appear more or less in all the uh, let's think, 120 editions that I covered. They just didn't want to do it they w- and, and we couldn't force them to. Um, the, I think Evan Davis's move to the today program in April of this year, I hope that will have some effect. We need more people at the centre of our national discourse, who care about the numbers. And it doesn't take very many. I've made a whole career out of this. You know, I've, a whole career. It's very, It's a great career, but you're right that, that the only place for it at the moment is, that, is as the kind of referee. If you're trying to use, if you're trying to get something done, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do at the moment, all the incentives are to be naughty. And I think the only way we'll stop that is by having nastier punishments for those who get caught out. Um, and the best punishment of all is, is ridicule and embarrassment.
0: Anybody else? Don't over there.
2: I find your position very interesting that on the one hand you you know discover all these these um, abuses of, of numbers and in the public discourse. But at the same time you seem to trust a lot in, in doing it, and, and put all your trust in, 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 in education. Now, at this school, uh, Charles Goodhart has created this what other calls, good, called Goodhart's law, uh, which says the robustness or stability of any statistical relationship breaks down if pressure is put on it for control purposes. In other words, if you use numbers as indicators, then there will all this indicator chasing uh, start. Uh, we do that now all the time. And, I mean, it's not only the media that pick up numbers. It's polit- politicians themselves. New Labour is famous for creating all these benchmarks that we then chase. The European Union constantly puts out benchmarks. So wouldn't, that, from that point of view, be the, the consequence that when, or conclusion one draws that one rather should rely less on all these numbers for public policy debate?
1: I I I think it's an extremely important point. I think uh, my own response is absolutely no, that we shouldn't, because it turns out that numbers can create problems, then abandon them. Because that would be a bit like saying, uh, when you look carefully at things, you see nasty things, so it's better to shut your eyes. Um, uh, So there is an area where what you point to is extremely important. That is in the area of target setting, and that's really what Goodhart's Law is about. Charles Charles is not opposed to measurement, Knowing what's happening is very important the point that Charles makes extraordinarily clearly uh, is that if if we use as part of our target setting so reward and punishment mechanisms things that we're measuring then we'll see gaming behaviour and that will have silly consequences there's an example in uh, in the book where we show ambulance waiting times a new rule was introduced that you had to ambulances were meant to be there within 8 minutes Uh, and if you look at the data you find that an extraordinary number of ambulances started arriving on site at 7 minutes and 59 seconds. Now, that could be the truth, but it clearly isn't. So there's a huge problem in how we monitor organisations within the public sector. And it's essentially a, it's a public sector problem. It's how do, we, how do we achieve the right incentive structures where there isn't a commercial uh, commercial discipline. Um, and the absurd use of targets has not been a good thing and measurement there has done damage because it's ended up being a case that that we're measuring less and less effectively what we care about more generally though we have to have data we have to have an image of the world if we're to make public policy we have to know what people's incomes are if we're to know to whom we should allocate support. We have to know what kind of diseases people have got if we're to know how to allocate resources in the healthcare system. We have to know what's happening to the scale of government if if we're to know whether we should be surprised or not about how difficult it is to be Uh, the government. A couple of last charts. This is for just about every OECD country total tax revenue from 1955 to 1985, and the purple line, this, this slide here, is the average. The point I'm making is that in the, most of the post-war period, the government just got bigger. That. That's what happened for the last 15 years. The contrast between those two slides is pretty important if you want to understand what's going on in welfare state positions, for example, and why. And I can't think of any way in which you could seek to understand all of that without those numbers. I can't think of any way in which you can understand the role of a social security system without knowing what the distribution of income is. I don't see any way in which we can evaluate the effect of smoking on health without experimental evidence tracking the number of people who are smoking and what's going on with health. It's very difficult and if we then decide that we're going to reward Health authorities, conditional on how many people stop smoking, then we're in real trouble because there is this feedback mechanism. But I believe passionately, for all the examples I've given you of of things being done badly, that actually if we become more immersed in data and quantification as a way of representing it, which is not the only way of measuring it, I have on my wall in my study the William Booth Max of Poverty. Those colours are a much better way of representing what was going on with the distribution income and almost any numbers I can think of. Um, but so it's, it's data but about which I feel passionate and data about which I think we are in this country really rather glib. We just don't take it seriously enough. And if we took it more seriously, I think we would have a better debate. I mean, Another example is the whole tax credits charade. Um, means-tested benefits for those on low incomes are not something that I'm personally necessarily opposed to. But the earned income tax credit, where where the proposal was that we would pay people an amount of of tax credit that was based on their previous year's income and then adjust it at the end, seemed to me one that was based on an inadequate understanding of how much people's income fluctuated. I remember having a discussion yeah, okay. no, I will say this, although this is also off the record. I ha- remember having a discussion with Mr. Brown when I was still at the IFS, and this was the core of what I did, and saying, "Well, look, I really don't think you, I don't think you can do that. I think it's a very good idea. Um, you know, if you look at the number of people whose incomes fluctuate, you, you, you know that you're going to find a large number of people who are going to find themselves owing you an awful lot of money." I made the same point to the Treasury Select Committee and the Social Security Select Committee. Uh, this, bec- this was not a point that was taken seriously in the Treasury at the time, because at the time, I don't know whether it's still true, that was not how we did public policy. We didn't ask ourselves, well, we didn't really ask ourselves how many people would be affected. Somebody had an idea and it got written into a political party's manifesto, and then we did it. Um, we've now unwound an awful lot of that particular policy, because it turned out not to be very sensible. If, if we had a culture where we took the numbers more seriously... And I think we would make fewer such stupid mistakes. But I realize I'm polyamorous about this, and then I should probably go back to my calculator.
0: Well, I'm thinking that's a nice place to finish, but I, if there's any, any more, anybody... Okay, another
3: one.
0: You've given good cause for concern about the UK, but is there any country in the world where they do it much, much better?
1: not a whole heap better. I think that some of the Scandinavian countries have in my view better arrangements for the National Statistics Services. I remember a lovely conversation with the National Statistician for Sweden, I think, where they don't have any early access to data for government ministers. And I said, well, I said to him, well, how did you negotiate that with your ministers? And he said, I didn't negotiate with them. I I sent them a letter. Um... And I think think we are about to make some progress in that direction here. I think the more independence there is, the better off we'll be. I think it's been, for example, very uncomfortable to be a civil servant in this country for much of the last 20 or 25 years. I think it's become harder and harder to to do the challenge function, to say to a minister, well, actually, minister, you know, what about this? I'm not sure that... Um, I think if we had more independence of a national statistical survey, national statistical service, who who will be likely to, not simply to do uh, the normal run of things, but on occasion to be proactive. So in, I think it's Sweden, the national statistics service at the beginning of each election campaign puts out a compendium of the statistics it thinks are relevant and important to the political discussion. And I think something like that would have a significant effect on the way in which politicians comported themselves. And we shouldn't see them as the guilty party. They will rather, as the, the lobby groups that mention that, unless we have a structure that punishes them for doing badly, they'll do, you know, they'll, because they think they're after the best interests of everybody, they will do naughty things with statistics, and sad people like me will be very upset, and they'll get elected. All right. I think it's a wonderful place to finish. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you.